Manner of Speaking, a monthly podcast on the spoken word. Episode number 22, November 2019, RP, Received Pronunciation. A conversation with David Crystal. Hello, Paul Meyer here with my latest podcast from Paul Meyer Dialect Services and the International Dialects of English Archive. First up, guess that accent. Last time I played this clip and challenged you to say where on the planet the speaker grew up. All my life I've been um, dreaming of being a teacher or something like that, but now I've currently been changing my mind because I think there's a lot of things to do apart from being a teacher or a nurse as those were the most important careers long ago. However, things have changed now and there are a lot of opportunities for black people. If you guessed South Africa, congratulations. It was Ideas South Africa 8, submitted by Yvette Hardy, one of our South African editors. The subject, from Johannesburg and Soweto, is an ethnic Zulu. To hear the whole recording, search for South Africa 8 at dialectsarchive.com. Now here's this month's challenge. Where did this speaker spend his formative years? My first contact with English was really at home. I remember I was like eight or nine years old. Uh, then uh, we purchased at home this course that came in uh, audio cassettes and books from the BBC London. It's what's called English Junior. Get the answer next time on In a Manner of Speaking. Since we last met, I've been putting the finishing touches to a new dialect manual. My first one since the Jamaican dialect, two or three years ago. The new book is A Modern British Dialect, Estuary. Publication in December or January. If you'd like to add your name to our mailing list to hear when it's available, email me at paul at paulmeyer.com with add me to your mailing list in the subject line. My guest this month is eminent linguist David Crystal. He was my guest on episode 5 when we talked about pragmatics, that fascinating linguistic topic. Today we talk about the history of received pronunciation, RP, also known as the Queen's English, BBC English and other names. We've heard it in Downton Abbey and just about any other favourite British period drama. I plan to engage David in the topic of estuary too, which many predict will eventually supplant RP. Please read more about David by following the links on the Inner Manner of Speaking homepage at paulmeyer.com. David, wonderful of you to uh, spare the time for another podcast. We did our Pragmatics podcast a, a little while ago, but today we're going to do uh, English accents. Uh, I don't know if we'll touch on OP that we've, of course, done together, but certainly RP. So what is RP? When did it arise in English and why? Well, you know, most people think that RP has been around in a long time in the sense of hundreds and hundreds of years. In fact, it started towards the end of the 18th century, around about the year 1800 or thereabouts. I mean, what do we mean by RP? Well, there are many kinds of RP, as perhaps we'll discuss, but there are certain, as it were, signature sounds that people will notice for RP. For instance, like the R in bath rather than the A in bath, or things like that, or the, the absence of an R after the vowel, 
or the, the presence of an H at the beginning rather than dropping your H, certain things like that. So the question is, when did those sounds first start getting recorded in dictionaries? And when did people first start teaching them as the sign of an educated accent? And the answer to that is towards the end of the 18th century. If you go to John Walker's Critical Pronouncing Dictionary, which was published in 1791, and you look at all the entries in there, then, then you, you will see there, I mean, he has Bath, for example, uh, not, not Bath, and he pronounces the R after the vowel and things like that, and that was to go soon afterwards. So round about 1800, the growth of the elocution movement, which started to train and what was perceived to be an upper-class accent of some sort, was beginning to manifest itself. So I'm just coaching Treasure Island, a, a stage adaptation of Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island, which he, although he wrote it in the late 19th century, sets it in the late 18th century. So would uh, Squire Livesey and, and, uh, and the physician and the prestige characters in Treasure Island set in 1750, 60, 70, what would I do with those, for example, as a dialect coach? Well, there, as they say in the theatre, there are your character choices, dear boy. <laughs> you know, you have options here now. That, that was the period during which the accent was evolving, no question about that, because you can follow it through. You can look at the transcriptions of sounds in Dr. Johnson's dictionary and Sheridan's dictionary and Walker's and so on. And you see gradually the emergence, not just in the transcriptions, but in the comments that people make. Walker, in his dictionary, has many comments, some favourable and some unfavourable, about the pronunciations in Sheridan, for instance. Certainly by the middle of the 19th century, the accent was well and truly arrived. Because the growth of the elocution movement began because of the changes in the English class system. As always with the study of accents, indeed the study of language generally, it doesn't take long before you slip out of linguistics into social history. When you look at the class system of the 18th century, what you find is the traditional upper classes, the aristocracy and so on, and the lower classes between the emergence of a new middle now, class or class, you see, this is the uncertainty that these people felt. These were, these were uh, the senior middle classes of those days were very important people. These were the people who started the Industrial Revolution, really. They, they invented the textile machines and the, and the new ways of making roads and the locomotives and things like that. And they made factories and they became very, very rich. And there are lots of stories from the time sometimes reproduced in novels, but sometimes in letters and diaries, uh, of these people now living in the countryside with a big house and all the servants and the carriages and everything. And they get invited to dinner by the local aristocrat around the corner, who's got also a big house, but maybe not quite so big, who knows. Uh, and they go for dinner and they come back home and they say it was a, it were a lovely evening, May, but... Uh, <laughs> But they were laughing at us. They were laughing at us. They didn't like the way we spoke. And so these people say, we're going to have to do something about that. And so they go to elocution classes. The, the growth of the elocution movement is in the second half of the 18th century. And um, Sheridan, the father of the dramatist, made himself a millionaire by going around the country, training people to speak the emerging accent of the upper classes of its time. Uh, you mentioned the long A of, of Bath versus Bath and the, and this, and the new sounding of 
initial age, as, as in hat on my head, which, as we know from our OP studies, was uh, variously dropped. And you mentioned the post-vocalic R, um, as in letter versus letter. Uh, how about the final uh, G in uh, laughing and, and hunting ah. and shooting and fishing? And Yeah, that was, that's a, a, a more interesting one in some ways. But, you, but first of all, to go back to those first three, and uh, you, you can see the reasoning behind this. Walker, actually, at the beginning of his dictionary, is super critical of some of the regional accents of Britain, especially the Scots and the Irish and, and, and the Cockneys in particular. I mean, he really is. He talks about them as being horrible accents, accents to avoid at all costs. And you ask why? And there's always a sort of signature sound that uh, worries him. In the case of Cockney, it was the dropped H, indeed. Cockneys drop their H's then, uh, as they do today. Uh, a Cockney does not say, I... I hurt my arm. He says, I hurt my my harm, hurt, dropping the H and harm, putting the H in. So if Cockneys do that, then we certainly will not, you see. So that's a motivation for the for the H situation. Indeed, newspaper reports of the time suggest that there were groups of people who met in London taverns and coffee houses. Uh, one group was called the Society for the Protection of the Letter H. And they would go and practice making sure that their H's were present uh, in the appropriate cases. And then if you look at post-vocalic R, as in heart and so on, well, again, you see, you look around the country and you listen to the way those horrible Scots say heart and the West Country people put R and so on. And you say, well, if these regional rustic people do that, we will not. And so you can kind of understand the motivation for the choices that eventually formed RP when you look at the contrasts with the rest of the country. Now, final G is trickier because most of the country didn't pronounce it. Upper classes sometimes went one way and sometimes the other. Hence, eventually, in the later 19th century, the example you mentioned, the hunting, shooting and fishing uh, example, which curiously, you see, is being used by the upper classes and also by the lower classes who are also dropping their Gs at that particular time. In the interest of the actors among us who might be listening, when did RP or its, its prototype start to become de rigueur? on the stage? Oh, mid-19th century, pretty undoubtedly. I'm, I'm no theatre historian, but I have read Punch magazine scrupulously from beginning to end. Punch starts satirising actors' pronunciations round about, you know, 1850, uh, especially when they're doing Shakespeare. Because in the uh, original pronunciation that you taught me, now, what's it now, 15 years ago that we got started with OP and our, our production of Midsummer Night's Dream, you taught me something that uh, flabbergasted me, which was that the, there really wasn't a prestige accent at Shakespeare's time, and we, we would hear all kinds of regional accents on the stage. And, and, and yet, me going to drama school in the, in the 60s, you know, I spent my entire first year being taught RP as if you could never, ever get a job in the theatre if you didn't speak RP. And so what a long way from... From Shakespeare's yeah. day, that is, in the, yes, four, in, the right. four, in the 400 years interval. But yeah, no, no, no prestige accent in Shakespeare's time, or at least no prestige accent of the kind that we would associate with RP. Um, there was, of course, an 
an educated ability. I mean, Holofernes in Love's Labour's Lost is being satirized because he insists on pronouncing every letter in the word. You, you know, there are these idiots, he says, who pronounce debt as debt, whereas everybody knows it should be debt, you see. Because so, there's a B in it. <laughs> it's because there's a B in the spelling. So if you know how to read and write uh, and spell, and about, you know, 5% of the population, I suppose, did, then you would perhaps speak in that kind of way. But apart from that, no, you could get to the top of the kingdom without any kind of special accent change. So we've got famous cases like Drake and Raleigh, both Devonshire men and contemporary records say they kept their local accent till their dying day. And then in 1603, of course, the, the entire court started to speak in a Scottish accent because of James coming down from Scotland. And so, you know, regional accents did not have any kind of negative impact on your ability to make a solid career for yourself. Mm -hmm. Contrast that with the 19th century. So when the RP starts to evolve, it wasn't called received pronunciation until much later, of course, mm -hmm. until towards the end of the 19th century. But when this new accent started to evolve, it quickly came to be taught in the public schools. Now, that's public in the British sense. I'm talking about schools like Winchester and Eton and Harrow and so on. And then, and these are the schools that taught the civil servants and the upper class military and the missionaries and so on. Now, the 19th century is also the century of the British Empire. And so these are the people who would go abroad and take RP with them uh, so that the accent that people would have heard in India, Singapore, and so on, would have been RP. Uh, as the century progressed, uh, this accent consolidated and became taken up then by, amongst others, the theatrical profession. Uh, consolidated again later, of course, when the BBC comes along in 1922, and the accent is chosen, quite specifically chosen by Lord Reith, who was a Scot, as the accent of this new thing, because he says it will be most understood by the people of this country, by which he meant, of course, by the people of this country who could afford to buy a wireless, buy a radio set, uh, which would again mean the, the more well-to-do people in the country. So during the 19th century, RP became you know, the voice of educated Britain, the voice of the aristocracy, the voice of the people who could afford to go to the theatre and so on and so forth. It's not surprising, really, to find that it became such an obligatory feature of the theatrical scene. And that carried on, of course, right into the later decades of the 20th century. It's only in my lifetime that, that it hasn't been taught as the default everyday accent for actors. You know, so now we have British actors who certainly can do RP, but they now keep their, their regional accents. And uh, I think that's great. Yes, you get, and you get this this fascinating amalgam that's often called modified RP or regional RP or whatever you like, you know. So, so the sort of accent that I'm using now is not identifiable with any particular part of the country, though if you listen carefully, you'll hear my, my Welsh roots in there somewhere, perhaps, you know, and you'll hear my Liverpool background in there somewhere. Uh, but I say example rather than example most of the time. Um, I say glass rather than glass most of the time, but not all the time. And so you get the, this uh, phenomenon of mixed accents and modified accents, which makes the situation more customer friendly, if you like. I, I was struck by the way Ben um, interviewed his voice agent 
when we did a little book called You Say Potato uh, a few years ago. And he interviewed his voice agent who told him that these days, and we're talking about 2014, these days, she says, she never gets requests from commercial companies for an actor to do an RP voice uh, for a commercial. Um, she says that almost always a straight regional accent of some kind. Unless RP was to be made fun of or be the butt of the joke in a, in a commercial. Oh, yes, exactly. Hence the almost always. But for straightforward commercials, no, regional accents. And this is certainly something that uh, would never have happened 20 or 30 years ago, perhaps even more recently than that. So the interesting thing is that uh, RP is being perceived to be customer unfriendly, sort of distancing itself from the mass of the people. And you get the, you get the younger children of, of the aristocracy actually down-marketing their accents, don't you? Oh, you certainly do. I mean, the classic case of that is Prince William, who uh, was based up here at the RAF in the local RAF base, just five miles from where I'm speaking to you now. And he lived here for some years. And several people, including me, who heard him talk with his peer group, just in an informal way, noticed that his accent was very much accommodating to the kind of accents of the people who were around him. But on the other hand, when he was giving a, a, a posh speech, as it were, at an event, he would slip back into the traditional RP we associate with the Queen and so on and so forth. But even so, it wasn't identical with the Queen. Uh, RP has shifted with the generations in rather subtle ways. The interesting thing is that here's somebody with an aristocratic background who's able to code switch, if you like, uh, from one accent into another, depending on the circumstances. This would be a good place to play the Queen's Christmas Day speech from 1957 and the, the one from 2018. She's been famously studied, of course, for the shift in her accent over, over her long, long reign. But I think this illustrates quite nicely the mass marketing of the monarchy, the, the firm, as it's called in the royal family. 25 years ago, my grandfather broadcast the first of these Christmas messages. Today is another landmark, because television has made it possible for many of you to see me in your homes on Christmas Day. With two weddings and two babies and another child expected soon, it helps to keep a grandmother well-occupied. We have had other celebrations too, including the 70th birthday of the Prince of Wales. Some cultures believe a long life brings wisdom. I'd like to think so. What do you notice, David? I hear several things uh, when the Queen is speaking. Certainly the vowel in a word like, like man, uh, which you know, 50 years ago was very front and rather high, man, man, something like that. He's a mad, uh, he's a mad man. Yeah, yes, yes, even higher than that sometimes has, has centralized and lowered a little bit, so it's more man. Or to take another example, the, uh, the open vowel in, in a word like cup, uh, which would be very open in the early days, cup, 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 and is now more centralized, so it's more cup, cup. Very slight difference, but certainly there. Or uh, an end vowel as in history, history, re, 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 more history, tri, tri. You know, all these little differences, very slight, but in aggregate amounting to uh, a, a noticeable shift. And there's a slightly different placement, a slightly different tonality, don't you think? 
oh, I think a much more colloquial style, not, not going too far in that direction, of course, but a much more natural speech style. Let's get very personal for a moment. You talked a little bit about the evolution of your way of speaking with the, the Welsh, the Liverpool. You didn't mention the Northern Ireland, but you, were, you have some Northern Ireland roots too, don't you? Oh, only I was born there, um, yes, because it was wartime and um, some mothers were advised to stay out of bomb-risky areas, of which Hollyhead was one at the time. So Northern uh, Ireland was never an accent influence on you? Oh, no, no, I was only there a few weeks. In my own case, David, I'd love to, to get your commentary on this. I was brought up by my very, very Hampshire grandparents, my very loving grandparents in Andover, Hampshire, uh, my parents were away working a lot of the time in that first two years of life. So it's undoubtedly that my first accent that I heard was was the Hampshire that I can still recall with, <laughs> with, with the R's, you know, the burn barn born sound and yeah. uh, sound instead of sound, that kind of thing. So it's, it's undoubtedly that I came to speech with that kind of accent. And even though my grandparents were working class, my granddad was a carpenter. They had nine children. Five of the nine went to grammar school. They took their matrics and they went on to grammar school. The five of the nine siblings who went to grammar school all adopted RP. My mother was one of them. Mm. So I feel that she pretty quickly knocked the Hampshire out of me in, at age three or four. Then we moved to London and, you know, to avoid getting beaten up on a playground in South London... I know that I became bi-dialectal and uh, could very easily slip into South London. Uh, and then drama school came on the scene for me. And when, as I say, the first year of drama school was dedicated to to RPing all of the Scots and the Jamaicans and the, and, the, and the other kids from around the country, the Newcastle kids. And so RP became de rigueur for me. And yet I could code shift, I could bend a vowel this way and that way, depending on the company I was in. And so That's why you became a dialect coach, Paul. And, exactly so. And I moved to London when I was surrounded by all these, this plethora of, of speech styles from around the world. It was, it was heaven to soak up all those sounds. Your story there is, it parallels mine in, in a quite fascinating way, because I left Wales when I was 10 family moved to Liverpool and I distinctly remember my very first week at the uh, you know late last year of the first school primary school in Liverpool where I was told without a shadow of a doubt you, you know you don't speak like us taffy you better speak like us or we'll or we'll or we'll biff you you know and I, and I was told quite firmly that my Welsh accent which I had very strong in those days you know had to go and so, you know, survival of the linguistically fittest, isn't it? <laughs> and when you moved south for your career, uh, London and so forth, a professional was expected in those days. You know, we're both uh, way past 70. In those days, a professional had RP, right? Uh, for the most part, yes. So I don't know how typical this was, but at University College, in those days, University College London, um, at least half the lecturers had regional accents of one kind or another. But this was partly because of the linguistic background of the department, I suspect. Of course, you were a phonetician, a linguist. Do you think this would have been the same in the maths department or the English department or 
I suspect not. I, I have one or two recollections of uh, friends from other departments who had strong regional accents, and they did at times feel uncomfortable. There's one chap with a very, very strong Welsh accent from the psychology department. He didn't want to change his accent, but he did several times say to me that sometimes he wished he could, but he couldn't because of his identity thing, you see. He didn't want to, but yes. he felt felt the students were laughing at him a bit sometimes and therefore not taking his points as seriously as they otherwise would. Yes, exactly. Let's move on to the demise of RP. It's had a very, very long run, but it's lost its prestige. It's not the entrance ticket to society or the professions that perhaps it was perceived to be. So well, it depends on your profession now still, uh, Paul, really. I mean, the other day I was giving a talk to a couple of hundred lawyers, uh, barristers mainly in London, and without the shadow of a doubt, RP lives. But in certain professions and in certain institutions, it certainly has been put in its place. And the obvious example, of course, is the BBC. And you'll remember why the BBC changed its tune. Uh, we're thinking back now to the 1970s, when the BBC had a report into its uh, services and policies by Lord Annan, A-N-N-A-N, the Annan Report. One of his recommendations was the BBC needs more regional accents. And you ask why? Well, this is 1970s. The growth of local radio stations is one of the most important trends in the country at the time. Local radio stations are capitalizing on their local accents and people are switching off the national BBC and turning on to the local BBC. So if BBC wanted to keep its audience figures up in that way, they needed to become more diverse. And they did eventually, but it took a long time. It's another kind of, of way of unifying the country, isn't it? Oh, very, very much so. It's, it's a kind of modern equivalent of Shakespeare's Henry V, you know, with your Englishman, Irishman, Scotsman and Welshman all fighting together against the horrible French. And today we, we are seeing the BBC doing its best to represent in some way the accents of what is, after all, well over 90, 95% of the British population. Holding, up the, holding the mirror up to nature, right? Yeah, only a tiny number of people ever spoke RP, and that total number is reducing, of course, as we know. So I'm now more and more being called upon to coach what's become, for better or for worse, estuary. So let's talk about that constellation of accents. What do you have to say about those accents? Well, I never liked the, the term estuary English because when it was thought up in the 90s, it was being presented, especially by the media, as if this was something new. Whereas, in fact, of course, it was a natural evolution uh, of modified received pronunciation, which had been around for quite a long time. You know, the features that were being identified as estuary weren't sort of suddenly arriving, but the media all said, oh, this is a new accent, this is the latest thing, and so on, and would identify various uh, famous um, personalities as speakers of it. But when you trace it back, you find that all the features of estuary English go you know way back into into earlier decades once again it's it's a mixed accent of course uh, it arose as as you well know but perhaps not everybody does re realize that that it came about as a result of a multiplicity of causes two trends coming together at more or less the same time the first trend was east london speakers cockney speakers 
who, as a result of the Second World War, where their houses were bombed out of existence, and in the decades following that, where they were having a really tough time in East London, but eventually their quality of life improving and going out into the home counties in order to find a, a better place to live. Uh, so Cockney suddenly started to go out and into the, the yeah, counties. And these are the, these are the seven or eight counties that surround London, just for our North American oh. listeners. Absolutely. Uh, the River Thames is the estuary in question, and we're talking about Essex in particular and Kent, uh, Essex on the north side and Kent on the south side, but also the counties to the west of London and indeed further afield than that. The circle of home counties is really rather broad. We're talking, you know, 50, 60 miles in a circle around London. Pretty much the whole of the uh, culturally, uh, artistically and economically dominant southeast, right? Yes, but not as far as, say, Oxford and Cambridge, you see. So right. they're keeping their traditions separate here. So there's that movement outwards from London. And then at the same time, we're getting the new network of commuter communications coming into existence. The motorways are being built from all over the country into London. The rail times are improving. And so suddenly an awful lot of people from outside London who would never really traditionally have gone there are finding that they need to go to London in order to work. So it's a huge movement coming in from outside. They are bringing their their local accents into London and then accommodating, of course, to what they perceive to be uh, some sort of London accent, depending on the people that they're working with. And, and so the two trends coming together produce now estuary English. I would always say estuary Englishes. Yes. There never was any such thing as a single RP or a single estuary English or a single any accent anywhere, really. It's always a, a cluster of people with different backgrounds and different influences. And so what we hear in, in estuary is certainly some of the, uh, the signature sounds, as it were, are noticeable, but not everybody will produce them always or in all circumstances. That's the interesting thing. Yes, of course. I'm, I'm the guy who's got to write a book that will uh, that will appeal to North American actors, particularly who uh, who suddenly are faced with a, a modern, a contemporary British play, and RP is no longer applicable. So I've, yes, got, and so I've got to come up with. You know, yeah. 15 or 16 signature sounds that would be the generalization. Yes, I, of course. I don't envy you that task at all, uh, Paul. I'm quite happy sitting here being a general linguist and not having to do sort of awkward teaching jobs like that. <laughs> but but yes, the, the, the important thing to appreciate is that whatever the, the choices that you make, you have to realize that they weren't the only choices you could have made and that you might encounter another person who claims to be speaking estuary English who's making slightly different kinds of choices. So if you take a, uh, an example like um, the replacement of TH by F, for instance, then, you know, you'll hear some people who will, who will say Heathrow uh, with an F for the TH, and some will still have a TH in there, you know, or some will say Gatwick, dropping the T, some will say Gatwick, still keeping the T, but not quite as strongly as it would be in RP, and all sorts of variations like that. Is there another topic that absolutely is dying to, to be dropped in here as we start to close? Well, I think, uh, you know, the, the only thing I would say by way of a close is that it's interesting that the label RP has itself fallen out of favour to some extent in recent years. I was very struck by the way 
you know, the famous textbook that most generations of phoneticians have been introduced to in this country, Gimson's Introduction to the Pronunciation of English. In its last edition, uh, the editor decided to drop RP as a term and replace it by General British, which, of course, is parallel to General American. And I was very struck by that. I thought, ah, this is a sign that things really have turned a corner. It's not yet RIP, but it's going <laughs> in that direction. <laughs> that is funny, David. Not yet RIP. I love it. David, thanks so much for joining me. This has been, been fun as always. Real pleasure, Paul. Thank you. And thanks to you for joining David Crystal and me, Paul Meyer. Join me next time when my guest will be Elspeth Morrison. She's a busy London-based dialect coach, but we'll be talking specifically about her fascinating work as a performance coach for the BBC. Next time on In a Manner of Speaking. <laughs>